Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Berkeley Brady, a Calgary writer and director whose first feature, Dark Nature, stars Hannah Emily Anderson as Joy, a woman recovering from the trauma of an abusive relationship who joins her friend Carmen on a wellness retreat in the deep woods and soon becomes convinced that something malevolent is stalking them. The film played the Fantasia and Blood in the Snow festivals last year, opened theatrically across Canada this past spring, and now it's streaming on Hollywood Suite. You should check it out. Berkeley picked Beaches, Gary Marshall's beloved 1988 melodrama based on the novel by Iris Rainier Dart about the lifelong friendship between two women, Cece and Hillary, played as children by Mayim Bialik and Marcy Leeds, and as adults by Bette Midler and Barbara Hershey. Over the decades, they comfort one another through ups and downs, romances and heartbreaks, fights and reconciliations, until a final crisis knits their lives together in a way neither of them could have predicted. I mean, if you know, you know. This is someone else's movie. Beaches was a formative movie. I can't remember. I, I think it's it's made in 1988, so I would have been seven. And I think I saw it when I was maybe 10. And um, I saw it with my best friend at the time. And we just loved it. We were just pulled in. Like, we just thought it was this amazing tale. And pardon me. Um, you know, just to us at that age, it would just functioned as a strong narrative. Like, I, it was like about these two friends and this is what happened. And then it had this really sad ending and we felt so many things. And I realized as I went through life, like when I lived in New York and I would see these like railroad apartments with the bathtubs in a room that is not supposed to be in, I'd be like, that's like CC Bloom. <laughs> and then as I got older, um, my uncle and his husband sort of started introducing me to the gay culture of the era and of New York. And I realized Bette Midler was this icon and they played me clips from these clubs and who she was. And I just like, I knew I liked her for a reason. And then furthermore, I just found out how much this was a passion project for her. Like really. And so I was like, you can feel it. I just feel the love behind the production. And it's a movie that now I could turn on. It was on TV the other day with my same best friend. Now, 30 years later, we're bawling by the end of this movie, just bawling. And I'm like, you know what? This is melodrama functions. I love a good melodrama. And I want to like sing that to the, to the skies. I want everyone to accept the love of the melodrama. It's weird. I'm trying to figure out how to exp how to explain this this phenomenon, which I'm realizing isn't unique to our generation, but is very specific to the way people experience film. Like the stuff you see as a child is the stuff that you will love unconditionally for the rest of your life, right? Because you don't have a frame of reference. And then when something holds up or delivers the hit that you need it to deliver, it becomes even more precious. And some part of us has been told to classify it as a guilty pleasure, right? Like to mm -hmm. to to push it away, push it down and and apologize for it. And that's where camp comes from. And yeah. that's so beaches. Yes. Right? The like the, and it's okay. The, <laughs> it's like I love that. And I love that about it. Yeah. It's liberating to I mean the the whole post um the I don't even know how you explain the career rehabilitation of Gary Marshall who made movies that people like, but made a lot of crap. And then 
every single one of his films somehow ends up being not crap to someone. And I, I wouldn't even classify Be- Beaches as absolutely a programmer he made before he had authority, before Pretty Women came along and made him an auteur, so more or less. Mm-hmm. But it was really just it was kind of almost cruelly dismissed at the time. I was I was 20 the year it came out. And uh, and I remember like the knives were out and then you see it and suddenly you realize this is probably the single best use of Bette Midler's screen persona. And Barbara Hershey is doing real dramatic work quietly in the background with this big flamboyant center stage performance. And there's Hershey doing just just remarkable dramatic work in the margins. And so much of it is so weird. Like the reason I saw it was because Spalding Gray was in it and I was a big fan of his. Um, But there's so much in it that isn't kitsch, that it was written off as kitsch originally. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, if you saw it when you were 10, you came to it with no expectations, I assume. Like what were the circumstances? Oh, I can't remember. You know, it's a VHS tape. You're at the video store. Mm -hmm. What is this? Two ladies. One has big red hair. Let's let's check this out. <laughs> Pop it in. Push it in. It starts. You know what? To be honest, I think I actually recorded it off TV. <laughs> so I think if I dig deep, I can find that tape and it has the commercials from 88 um, that you'd have to fast forward. But yeah, so why do you think, not that 20 is that much older, but it's you you were just beginning adulthood. Do you have ideas now looking back as to why you think it was so maligned? And I wonder if maybe part of it was just the fact that Midler had this deal with Touchstone Pictures or Hollywood Pictures, one of the Disney arms that was making quote unquote grown up movies. And she made a string of these films. And it was like the last gasp of the studio system where they were just plugging Bette Midler into things like big business and ruthless people. Mm. And generally they were asking her to go big and beaches is the one where she goes big but so does the film and so she doesn't stand out as much as become the aesthetic and mm-hmm. i mean this thing has musical numbers that are diegetic this thing's ha- you know, like the 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 titsling brazier song which is so weirdly catchy and so gary marshall you know like he's I'm not titling inventor stuff <laughs> I know the reason to you that I I was thinking titsling as you were being just never saying titsling. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking that as you were saying it because that's what happened to her character in the movie. She goes too big. She kind of sells out, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, and as you're saying it, I'm like, is that a Gen X sort of you know rebuke of going big and selling out? But when I look at this all too, I'm like, it is also just like the story of two female friends. And it's earnest. Mm -hmm. And is that allowed? Like, how often do we just see that emotion? And I think that's why looking at this film, for me, why I think it's actually such a great film and why I love it is it allows a portrait of this friendship that allows the ups and the downs. Yeah. And now it would be a series, right? Now it would be a Mm -hmm. 10-episode limited series. I'm sure someone will adapt it as soon as they figure out who to cast. (laughs) Yeah. Who could they cast? Oh, now? I want to see Jessica Chastain and Viola Davis, but you know, that's just, I mean, that'd be amazing, but you need, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, okay. I just did some trivia on it before our podcast. And I okay. also learned Barbara Hershey got collagen injections in her lips for, to play the university aged version of herself, which in 88, I don't know if that was safe. 
Yeah, were people doing that? I guess they were. People were not doing that. But she did it. Huh. It does explain why her face looks so different. I just assumed it was prosthetics. But then again, collagen. Ugh. I mean, hopefully we're past the point where people can mutilate themselves, even in temporary circumstances for a role. But yeah, that was 1988 for you. She took a leap. <laughs> yes, yes, she did. Um, but she's giving such a real performance. Oh, man, she didn't need to. Uh, it's, I keep getting stuck on that weird impulse to dismiss Gary Marshall as someone who didn't really care about the movies he was making for more than the length of time it took to shoot the scenes. Cause his later stuff, he was, you know, like he's this inveterate entertainer and then he reinvents himself as an actor kind of as a, as a kitsch factor actor in the, in the nineties and the two thousands. But there was a window of time where what young doctors in love is like 1983. This is five years after this very silly, very kitschy soap opera picture he made. And I think there's some other stuff in the middle that no one remembers. And then he just takes this big, bold swing because he doesn't pander. The comedy is broad, but the drama is big. Yes. And he's, yes. he's giving people what they want. Like this is. It's, it to us. He is. And I think he did care. Anyone who said he didn't care about that movie, that is. You cannot make that movie and not put your heart into it. There is heart in every scene of that movie on every level. And anyone who thinks differently, like, come talk to me because <laughs> I know that I can see it. I can feel it. And I love that that's what cinema does. It is feeling. It's emotion that we feel like you can't fake that. There's no way. <laughs> I'm even thinking now to a pretty woman and how much I love his direction and pretty woman like that movie. I know it has problems, but mm -hmm. we're still watching it. You can put that movie on and someone who's 15 or 16, wherever young you will allow a person to watch that movie <laughs> and someone who's 50 or 60 will watch it and understand what it's about. Understand it's a fantasy. It's not real, but yet it is real. And it's about something, it's about our hopes and it's, a, it's just a lot. Like there's something in this form of movie and this sort of classical directing that I really aspire to and I respect so much. It was funny because, um, so I went to film school um, at Columbia for my MFA, which was an incredible experience. And they call it a program for a reason, because you are being programmed like a cult, like a true cult, but a cult that I did choose of my free volition. <laughs> and I went, we had, there was an adjunct uh, professor and uh, for a screenwriting class. And I have a dream to make a movie that takes place in a certain sport area and to pair that with beaches. And so I said, like, I want to make this a movie like with this, but beaches. And she was like, no, but you mean like, you want to make a good movie, don't you? Like, you don't like beaches. Like, it was just like poo poo, poo poo. And I think, I think it is a good movie. It's technically very good as well. And again, that's the central conflict right there. If you, I say this about at least two movies every year, and people will see the pitch and dismiss it out of hand. But if you actually watch it, um, and we're hearing this all the time now. Nobody sets out to make a bad movie. Nobody would make the commercial, like nobody would make the version of Beaches that people think of when they see the poster um, mm -hmm. because they immediately devalue female friendship and they immediately think because it's a Bette Midler picture, they know what they're going to get. And they do, which is the, the most fascinating thing about it is that it Trojan horses an actual drama in under the 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 banner of this, you know, Mayim Bialik being larger than life, even as the young Cece, there's, there's so much pep and zing and energy and all the things that 
people run screaming from and then it just refuses to condescend like it just it won't let you write it off because it grows into this bigger richer story and it's the thing that other middler movies miss like the rose is so campy even though it doesn't mean to be or some part of it doesn't want to be and then on the other hand the other side of it you get for the boys which is this weird uso tour vehicle that was already designed to appeal to people who were not going to movie theaters even then like the subject matter was just at war with a concept it was just like hey we have james con and bet midler they're kind of old now let's do that <laughs> and, and beaches is just right in the middle of it and i i glanced at uh, gary marshall's filmography and he made this after overboard which is wow. this big broad weird extremely problematic movie as the kids say um and then he made this and he respects everybody in it Mm-hmm. which is, I think, the thing that no one was expecting, myself included, yeah. is that it takes this stuff seriously when it needs to. Like, the, the relationship is loose and fun, and, and now that I'm older and I've had lifelong friendships, I understand it's dead on. It's completely accurate. Yeah. This is how people who know each other so well relate to each other. There's not a lot of declarative, you know, like, there's not a lot of declarative dialogue, exposition. There's none of that, I've known you this long. It's just they know we, they get each other and and maybe it's all on the cutting room floor or maybe the the leads are just sharp enough that they know how to undersell everything but it's just it's so well attenuated i was really surprised coming back to it to see yeah just how mature it is it is and i think when you think of how hard it is to tell a story that spans that amount of time from when they're you know 8 or 10 years old mm-hmm. until they're in their 40s that's really hard to do it's we see so many biopics where you can just feel like ugh here we go again, skipping through the decades and going, making like hitting those marks. And it just doesn't, they don't feel alive. Whereas this feels like each part of their life and each era that we see them in is completely vital and completely makes sense. And it is such a role. Like I always think of films as roller coasters, the experience of being on a roller coaster, like you're going up, 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 up. Oh, I'm plunging down. Oh, but this is fun. Oh no, there's something scary. I'm going in a loop. I'm going upside down. Like you want that nice modulation of ups and downs. Same with orchestras, music, there's rises and falls. And this movie is the timing of the rises and falls. It's so, so satisfying. It's so human. And I think it's also a love story. Maybe that's where Gary Marshall, because Pretty Woman is a love story too. Mm-hmm. Maybe love stories are his his sweet spot. And I love the love story of a friendship, man or woman or gender, like whatever, non-binary, any, any person who has a friend that they just love. Like we need more stories about that because the friends are to me who get us through life. And that's why I brought it to why I said for my horror movie, Beaches was in my mind. And I would say my movie, Dark Nature, is an homage to Beaches and The Descent. Because why not? <laughs> Take everything you love. Big feelings. I love big feelings. And um, the idea that our friends get us through our hardest times in life as adults. We can't burden our parents with our real problems. Like, come on, they're, they're busy. They're getting older. They, they've got their own stuff. But our friends are really in the trenches with us. And what I really wanted to look at is... So on the surface, my movie is about a woman who's gone through this abusive relationship and she's trying to sort of stand on her feet again and get over it, let go of this thing. But it's actually about like, what does that mean to a friendship? 
how does that affect a friendship when you're going through a really hard time? You're kind of a selfish person because rightfully so you have a lot for yourself to figure out, but that doesn't make you the best friend, but you're at the same time requiring your friends to be the best that they can be for you at that time to help you. So what is the effect on the, on your friends when people go through hard times Um, or mental health crisis or any of these, these like real issues that we go through in life. And I think there is just a loyalty to friendship and I know friends break up to you and that's probably, you know, painful in a way that isn't explored enough in movies. And I think beaches is so beautiful because we see the breakup, but then we see them get back together. <laughs> They're the JLo Ben Affleck story of friendship. <laughs> It's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. This week, I'm making up for lost time, looking at Matt Johnson's Blackberry and Louis Leterrier's Fast X, and catching up to Criterion's new releases of Akira Kurosawa's Dreams and Cheryl Donier's The Watermelon Woman. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. You like reading about movies? I like writing about them. Come check it out. It's, yeah, that is the reassurance, right? Like there's, even though this is a, a melodrama and someone will ultimately die, it has a happy ending. Like the, the, that weird spirituality in as much as it has any at all is that their bond survives death. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like when she's like your hands, when they look at her hands and she lost her mother's hands and then she, you know, she has her daughter and the cat. Okay. This is a deep dive, but do you like Douglas Sirk? Yeah, and I absolutely see the connection that you're making there. Imitation of life. Yeah. Huge, huge. We we actually did we do an episode on imitation? I think we did do an episode. You did? I uh, wanna say yes, or maybe I'm thinking no, sorry, I was going to. Scott Thompson was gonna do that years and years and years ago. He ended up doing Gentlemen Prefer Blondes instead, but we oh. talked a lot about imitation of life as uh the darker version of melodrama that that he also loves, but we ended up going with Gentlemen prefer blondes because, uh, as he put it, it's more fun and I like boats. So, <laughs> which is true. Um, but yeah, no, there is absolutely like the idea. And, and of course, the other Midler movie that she made for Touchstone was Stella, like Stella Dallas, which is almost the same story of a mother sacrificing that. everything for a child. Trini okay. Alvarado was the kid in that. Okay. Um, it was right around, it might have been the last one she did for Touchstone. It was like 91 or 92. Okay. But, that level, I, I wonder if there is some some impulse to cast Midler in those movies because the performances tended to be bigger. Like Douglas Sirk films are always heightened and and the 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 music tells you how to feel. And even before the actors open their mouths and they're the like the mise-en-scene is so claustrophobic and confining and in things yeah. like Magnificent Obsession and Written on the Wind. And, Midler would fit right in like she would be she wouldn't be the lead she'd be the loud friend but yes, that's what's so great exactly. about Beaches is she gets to be the loud friend and the lead yes exactly and there's even a more literal connection in those movies which is the opening it's a little girl getting lost at the Atlanta boardwalk so I obviously had seen Beaches so many times before I'd seen Imitation of Life and then when I saw it I was like how do I how do I know this? I'm like, this is a straight ripoff. Beaches ripped off imitation of life. And so when I sort of put it in that context and saw 
Gary Marshall as continuing what Douglas Sirk had done and like Bette Midler as a queer icon and seeing those connections. And we just know like who are our people before we know the politics, before we understand, you know, some of the more complex things happening. We just understand the essence. I'm going to put Tina Turner in there too. I've got a picture of her up in my room. Like I love Tina Turner. <laughs> it's like, I mean, who doesn't? But um, yeah, I really love, like you say, the mise-en-scene with Douglas Sirk and the colors and just giving us that opulence of framing and composition and performance, just being like, these are the bold strokes and there will be subtlety here, but I'm going to go bold here so you can feel everything inside. It just feels so respectful to the audience. And I think that's like horror, why I love horror. It's just like, you want to, you're coming here to like, get rid of fear. Let me like give you fear so you can get it out of your body. It's just a very embodied sort of way of, of art making, which I really aspire to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're both purgative, right? Like even, even melodrama is encouraging you to get rid of all the sad that you brought in with you that yeah. you didn't even know you were carrying. Yeah, exactly to shine a light on just those emotions. And I remember I had a, a friend, um, German friend, really smart guy, Stefan. He was saying, he was doing a, a paper sort of about how the only publicly acceptable, or the only place that it's publicly acceptable to cry for men is in the theater at a buddy film. So that's why war movies with a buddy. I think that's like the man version of Beaches. <laughs> A war movie where you're with your buddy and he's dying <laughs> and that's the only place too where men it's like culturally acceptable that they're allowed to cry yeah i mean there's a bit about that in sleepless in seattle right where tom hanks pretends to break down talking about the dirty dozen right uh, but it is the bit is that yeah it's one of those little nora Ephron asides that she sticks into the feature about how we can release that sort of thing and you know nora Ephron and gary marshall were basically making the same movie at that point in time too yeah. Yeah, something yeah, there. There is. There's something there. So, our film scholar, come on, tell us what it is. We're waiting. Oh, no, I think that's it. I think you hit it. Um, Stefan nailed it. That that is. Yeah. I remember going to see Field of Dreams in '89 with two very very close friends, and all three of us sitting in the front row of the Varsity Theater, just saying that was really good. <laughs> exactly. It's like how you can have a hard conversation when you're driving with someone because you're both just looking forward. Pointing forward. Yep. Yeah. And so you're pointing forward. You're in the dark. There's music. Um, I saw you had Anthony Shim on. And Rice Boy Sleeps was also a movie where I saw it at TIFF as part of the writer's studio. Oh, right. Yeah, they, they screened it for us. And it was really nice to be in a dark theater with this cohort that I had, which I trusted so much. It was such a, such a just incredible group of people that I felt so comfortable with. But even with them, I was like, oh my God. Like I was dreaming. I was like, wait, I don't have to hide it here. And I looked over and I see like, you know, this person's dabbing their eyes. And it's like, no, we could just cry here. Like we need to cry. I think crying is so, so important. And I think everything about our culture now tells us to be stoic, hold it in. And I think there's a lot of things about actual stoicism that I think are great. And yes, we should, we should aspire to. But there also has to be that space for crying, screaming, laughing. And I think movies allow us to, to do that and to do that together. God, it's one of the greatest feelings in the world to, to look to your left and right and realize everybody is, because so many 
the thing I love the most about cinema is that you can be in a room with 500 people and everyone is having a slightly specific experience. We're all in the same dream state. We're all watching the same thing and hearing the same thing. And yet we're all processing it slightly differently. But when you hit that moment where everyone is feeling it like a wave of emotion rolling through the theater, there's nothing, even, you know, like comedy, drama, uh, a truly terrifying i've seen alien in the theater twice now with audiences and or just something like jaws where sometimes people try to approach it ironically and it just doesn't care and beats them into submission <laughs> just the greatest and, and, and the descent too actually since you mentioned it plays the same way when that first moment happens when the big reveal an hour in yeah I, i've heard a chorus of voices all screaming oh fuck all in different, <laughs> different yeah tenors Yes. No, it is such an incredible thing. And I love like that there can be both of those things can be existing at once. It's like we are the quantum computing. We are. <laughs> yeah. We are two places in once. And it is so neat that films could be made now. I guess beaches, what is that? 88. 35 years. Don't think about it. That it still can just like play us like an instrument. I love that. And same with Jaws. Like I love that. And Alien too. Um, actually just um, was mentoring under Paul Jennings. Uh, he's a second unit director okay. and former stuntman who did a lot of the stunts for one of, I think Alien 3, you know, when Sigourney Weaver like goes like this and she falls back to sacrifice. Yeah. That's him. <laughs> yeah, he did that stunt. Oh, you have to shave his head and everything. Yeah. Poor guy. Yeah, <laughs> I think he was okay with it. And God, he said he she must was have really stories. cool, <laughs> right? He said she was really cool and really happy that a guy was like her body double doing that. She's like, that's awesome. Like I've got the, the muscles to like pull that off. God, he must have, there must be stories from that shoot. Did he talk about it? I mean, that was the only one from that shoot. He told me a lot of stories of many shoots he's done. Indiana Jones, Batman, um, everything. He's done, he's a, a literal legend and he's just, working with him and mentoring under him, I realized why it's because he's just an awesome person. There's actually, if you are interested, anyone out there, there's a BBC documentary about him, Paul Jennings, stuntman, BBC. It's on YouTube. You can look at the BBC followed him for six years because he wrote them a letter and was like, Hey, I'm becoming a stuntman. I think someone should document what I'm doing. And from that and who he is and who he showed himself to be on that documentary he started getting all the work and became this like legend that he is today. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah, because in England it's it's really hard to get a stunt card. You have to pass many, many tests, as you'll see in the documentary if you choose to see it. Parasailing, hang gliding, horsemanship, fencing, dance, acting, scuba, fighting. You have to get a certain level of proficiency in each of these things to qualify for your stunt card. So that was really cool to see too. Like I love the more I'm in this industry learning about what it is each department does. And it's really easy to sort of gloss over things, but the true craftspeople of each like wardrobe, makeup, these artists are just incredible, incredible artists. And I, I love learning about it. Yeah. It's, it's like, I know a few people on that side of things and, and it is like the X-Men. They all have these incredible talents and really, really specific abilities yeah. that I'm in awe of and could never attempt myself. <laughs> and it's for the best, you know, like let them do it. Cause I'll just sit here and, and enjoy the, the fruits of the work, but yeah. it is incredible. Like the craft that goes into just even building a fake wall in a studio 
it's amazing what can be done and what is done on a daily basis and that people just dismiss as, oh, that's just digital. It's like, no, people still build, people still build foam corp. That's all still happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming your film is mostly practical because of. Yeah. And we wanted to as well. Um, It wasn't, obviously we're working on an indie budget, but it was also an interest for my producer and myself. And we, we just prefer practical. And so, um, there's a scene in my several scenes in my film that happen in a cave. Mm-hmm. And so our exterior cave, we found in the Rocky mountains and shot those exteriors with the actors climbing up very, very like they really climbed to get there. It was no, it wasn't like, Oh, here's your trailer. And then you're just going to walk here. It's like, here's your trailer. Now you'll hike 20 minutes to the bottom of the hill. Now you're going to hike 15 minutes straight up a hill, hold onto a rope or have a harness if that's what you like go through, get to this cave. Um, and then we were able to take that exterior cave and match the rock texture and the colors to the interior, which is all done in the studio. And Myron Hyrak, who was the art uh, head of our art department, he's just so incredible. And I was like, how are you going to do this in a building? Are you going to make it look like a cave of the Rocky Mountains? And he actually took tarp, put it into a ball, mm. wound it up, then took a truck and rolled over the tarp with the truck. So it really creased it and then set up sort of wood frames and then just went in with uh, his team. They painted it to, to match the texture that we had in the real Rocky mountains. And it works. You're just like, that's a tarp that a truck ran over and it looks like a rock wall. Like, how do you do that? I would not have guessed that at all. That's great. Isn't that cool? And he also designed it so that it was movable. So there were, you know, when they come in, and there's the entrance that set moves and reconfigures to be other parts. So we could shoot the different scenes because you only have so much space and sure, so sure. Many materials. So that was something where I was like, film is magic. It just is. <laughs> yeah. It's incredible. The stuff that, that can be done now and is still being done. I've been trying to figure out because the, the way I usually wrap these episodes up is by asking, you know, what you, I, I think I can ask you what you borrowed from the descent, but is there anything from beaches that shows up in this psychological creature horror film, which is very good at doing what it does, but I can't think I've been trying desperately to tie, not desperately, but I've been trying <laughs> to tie it to beaches. It's like, well, there's intensity. And as you say, friendships, but is there something specific that you borrowed it, or it stole? Is that friendship and that love between them. But I think through our more contemporary lens where I think people are, you know, the zeitgeist, I think right now it's like, is it self-care or are you a serial killer? Or like, um, what is, what are boundaries? What are, what is mental health? Like, I think the way that we're talking about these issues now is just different than it was then. And for me, the beaches is like the scene where my characters are going through this really intense experience and they're kind of breaking up. They're like, you know, let's tell some truths and let's be real like this. Maybe this friendship is too much. Like, I don't know if I can do this. And I really love that at the end, I guess I'd say my lead is kind of more like the CC Bloom is she's been selfish. Like she realizes I have put my friend just through the ringer as a friend, but also now kind of we've gone through hell because it's a horror movie and we just went in the woods and encountered uh interdimensional creature, but <laughs> who like likes to eat people. But 
um, that she, at the end of the day, has that moment where she can, after they kind of had their friendship breakup, she could leave. Like, this is the time she could leave. She could run home. She has a chance. But she's like, I'd rather die than live knowing I left my best friend with this creature. That's Beaches. Yeah, that's Cece. She'd walk through fire. She would have, I mean, that's the thing about Midler, too. Like, she can be big enough as an actor that, that's, and still keep it recognizably human like there is that there's a moment I, I swear it's real there's a moment where she just makes this little gesture where it looks like she's about to rip her own heart out and give it to hillary and it's just there for a second but it's just like it's so powerful and so weirdly in character for something so big and there are other you know like and this is where i have to give gary marshall credit because there are other directors who would have gone for that like just go big go bigger and midler just she does it and throws it away in a way that that lands so powerfully, so emotionally real that again, like this huge character is still a recognizable person. I think you really feel that. Like, I don't think she left anything on the floor. Like she gave it. And I think she knew that this, this came from her heart. She loved this project. She loved this story. And you feel that. And she must like feel that for somebody to bring that to that role. And I think, and I hope everyone has a person in their life, whether it be a friend or a dog or anyone, just something that they just love and loves them back. And that's what this is. It's like, there's maybe we, we're lucky if we get one of those in our lives. And for me, it's my friend, Jen. Like she's my best friend since I was 10, who I'll be watching beaches with hope. And I don't know if one of us dies and the other watches beaches, it, it's not going to be okay. Like, or it'll be the best thing because they'll feel like the other is like, like there will be some spiritual experience that happens in that room at that moment. <laughs> like a candle will blow out or so, or it will turn on. God, yeah. Like that's a seance thing to it's have, to have beaches as seance. your object, as your seance object. Beaches is my seance. I'm going to make a beaches Ouija board. Yeah. <laughs> my thanks to Berkeley Brady whose new film Dark Nature is now streaming on Hollywood Suite in Canada and available to rent or buy on VOD across North America. Thanks also to Nicola Pender. She knows what she did. Berkeley's not on Twitter, because why would anyone be at this point? But you can find Beaches on Blu-ray and DVD from Walt Disney Home Entertainment and streaming on Disney Plus in Canada. It's also available to rent or buy on various VOD services across North America. You can find me on Twitter for a little while longer at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast. S-E-M-Cast and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.